Welcome to the Larger Us podcast, the show that's about how we can become a larger us rather than a them and us, by working at the places where our states of mind and the state of the world meet. With me, Alex Evans. Find out more about Larger Us's work and how you can get involved at larger.us. So hi, everyone, and welcome to the Larger Us podcast. For this episode, we have with us Monica Guzman, who is the author of I Never Thought of It That Way, How to Have Fearlessly Curious Conversations in Dangerously Divided Times, which is just published this month. The New York Times has called it a manual for difficult conversations between people who find themselves at opposite ends of the political spectrum, an investigation into the sources of polarization, and a roadmap for marching out of dicey territory. Someone told me last week that bridge building in the United States is experiencing something of a golden age. And if that's true, then Moni is someone who's right at the heart of it. She works at Braver Angels, one of the most interesting nonprofits working to bridge divides in America. And she's also active as a journalist in Seattle and the Pacific Northwest. Lastly, she's also an immigrant, a Latina, a dual citizen of both Mexico and the United States, and the mum of two bilingual kids. Moni, it's wonderful to have you with us. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. So tell us, first of all, a bit about you and how you came to do this work. Yes, yeah, so I have been a journalist my whole career, and that has been driven in a lot of ways, as I reflect, by this, first, this sort of addiction to people that I've developed where people are just so surprising and fascinating. Um, One of the things that you can tell me that I will vehemently disagree with you about, anyone, is if they say, you know, I'm kind of boring. I don't really have anything interesting to say. I'm like, nope, that's not right. Let's talk. (laughs) Everyone is so deeply mysterious and interesting. Um, I'm I'm the liberal daughter of uh, conservative parents who voted for Donald Trump twice. Uh, and were Mexican immigrants. So in 2017, I discovered this very unusual, uh, I I call it a party trick in Seattle, where uh, it was the, you know, the election had just happened. Anxiety was quite high about the future of our country, particularly in Seattle, which is, leans very heavily democratic and liberal. And at events with my friends, I would inevitably hear conversation about the latest you know, outrage or stressful headline, and it would work its way toward those people who voted for Trump. And that's when I would begin to hear some language, some labels applied to those people, right, that I knew weren't true because I love my parents dearly. And they and I have had conversations where I've gotten to the point where I understand their position so fully that I can say that if I were them, if I were them, I would have voted for Trump too. Um, so in those moments at those you know gatherings with my liberal friends, I would say, you know, my parents are Mexican immigrants who voted for Trump. And the party trick was how thoroughly that would stop conversation. Uh, and then what I would wait for was to see if someone would ask why. If someone would get curious enough to come up and ask why. Uh, And eventually, you know, and eventually some dynamic behind that drove me to think, I think I've got to do something. I I think I've got to put some of this down. I've got to do some exploring. What is blinding us to each other? What is getting in the way of us seeing each other for who we actually are and what we actually believe? There's such strong misperceptions out there and so much certainty 
that isn't warranted. Uh, what what can we do? And that led to the book. And, and I have to ask the question, why did your parents vote for Trump? Because, I mean, of course, many progressives listening to this will vividly remember Donald Trump, for example, on the campaign trail, I think it was during his first election campaign, saying, you know, that Mexicans are kind of bad people, they're rapists. I remember that. So what yeah. did lead your parents to to vote for him two times? Yeah. So for my mother, uh, she started the pro-life right to life club at my high school when she was a Spanish teacher there. Um Mexican, you know, Catholicism has a, a really interesting sort of flavor and morality. Uh, she and I have talked a lot about the issue of abortion. And she'll tell me now that her position, which is very strictly pro-life on that issue, is not necessarily driven or rooted anymore in faith, uh, but in in a view of morality that for her is just is just really solid. So it's difficult for her to put any devil, you know, next to uh, someone who would allow in what in her view is the murdering of, of, of people, the murdering of human beings that have not been born yet. Nothing can be worse than that. Uh, so, you know, that, that was sort of her initial reason is Democrats are just can't do it, just can't do it. For my father, it's a couple of things. Um, uh, one is a, a position on immigration. My parents are Mexican immigrants, right? Like, we, we came over the border. He, he got a job. You know, we, we, we did the whole thing. Uh, he crossed over legally um, from Mexico to the United States. And as a child, he really admired, as a child in Mexico, he admired the U.S. for how it would enforce its laws. Uh, Mexico, unfortunately, is still a country where you can get away with a lot. You can get away with not necessarily paying all your taxes, for example. And he just thought America is better than that. So with immigration, he doesn't have a lot of patience for not enforcing the laws. If you want to change the laws, cool, change them, but first enforce them. So there was a lot he respected about Trump's boldness on the border, where he thought, yeah, that's really, really important. We got to put that first. And then the second big reason for him is, frankly, it was just that sense of the American government is so dysfunctional. Politicians, in his view, are just spinning and lying to us all the time anyway, you know, maybe not lying about fact, but lying about, oh, I work for you and I do this for you and everything's above board. And he just never believed it. So for him, somebody like Trump, who was so unconventional and willing to break the rules, he thought that was a good thing. Like almost like let's throw a grenade in the government, see what it might shake up because gosh, it can't be any worse than what we've got now. Right. And did they, when they voted for him, did you have a sense of them doing so, holding their noses, as it were? Because, I mean, you know, you have a chapter in your book about othering as one of the things that really undermines curious conversations. And did they not feel othered by Trump in some of the way Trump spoke about Mexican people? What a wonderful question. Um, I, I would say that they they didn't really. They did not feel othered by Trump uh, in the way that, that that he spoke about Mexican people. And one thing to bring up on that, that I know might be sort of tricky, <laughs> tricky to hear, I suppose, is I do think, um, and of course I'm in America, so I'm thinking about like the American-centric way of looking at things, but I do think uh, that, that Americans often make a bit of a fallacy assumption that all Mexicans relate to all other Mexicans, you know? All pff, Germans would relate to all other Germans, all French people relate to all other French people. 
But we would never do that, say that about ourselves. You know, we don't have folks in, in, in the UK going, wow, that American doesn't, doesn't connect and relate to that other American. What a deep mystery. It's like, it's not a deep mystery. <laughs> the, the national identity is just not the first thing that, that matters. So I don't think that my parents ever thought that Trump was talking about them. They, ne he, they never thought Trump was talking about them. Right. So they never, it, it just didn't bother them that way. Okay. So let's talk about curious conversations. What, what are the ingredients of a, of a curious conversation? Ah, well, um, the, the very first thing that uh, a curious conversation needs to have is, is uncertainty. You have to have a gap between what you know and what you want to know. Um, the, the neuroscience of curiosity, yeah, the, the research is so fascinating, shows that that's ultimately what powers this, this amazing cognitive superpower that we have to pursue knowledge with a real hunger and craving for it. As long as our attention is on that gap between what we know and what we want to know, we, we could stop at nothing. It sort of depends to, to fill that gap, you know, to find the answers that we need. It could be as silly as like, oh my gosh, who was that woman in that movie? Oh my gosh, I, you know, that woman in that movie. And then you've got to go look it up. Uh, it, it could be as anxiety inducing as, oh my gosh, like COVID lockdowns. When am I going to be eligible for the vaccine? When is it coming to me? I got to go check the news every day. I'm curious. Um, it could also be what's called um, interest based curiosity, which is I, I have discovered something that's fascinating to me and I need to learn everything about it right now because it's so cool, right? And so when people talk about like, I ended up going down like a rabbit hole on so-and-so, it's often because we're just driven by this desire to know and it just doesn't turn off because our attention is on the next question that we need to answer. So that's where it begins. As a result of that, one of the one of the major uh, blockers to curiosity today in a polarized world is assumptions. The assumptions that we have about other people. When we think we already know everything we need to know about what those other people think and why. And so we're not curious about them. We're pretty certain. And certainty is the archvillain of curiosity. So the first thing you have to do to unlock curiosity that we're going to need to help in these divided times is to turn your assumptions into questions. And that means you have to notice the assumption as you're making it. And that can be pretty challenging uh, because we're surrounded by what, what I call our, our silos, you know, media silos, technology silos, but also sorting ourselves into geographically homogenous places when it comes to people who agree with us. All these things contribute to uh, the fact that the stories we hear and the ideas we hear are so much more likely to come from a place that we already understand that the things that we don't understand are going to feel that much harder to access. Uh, and we're going to need a little more curiosity to go and find them. Hmm. Interesting. There's many more ingredients, but I'll stop there. Well, and I'd love to delve into some of those. But before we do that, I mean, I, I had a first order question, which is um, about why it's important to do the work of having curious conversations. Because one of the things that I was interested to see in the book is that you're explicit that this is not about converting people to our side of the argument. So is depolarization an end in itself? And I, I'm asking this partly because, as you will know, lots of progressive activists are a little suspicious of so-called civility for the sake of it. And I'm guessing that, that you don't see this as just being about civility. But I, I'd just love to um, explore why should we have these courageous uh, or curious conversations? Yeah, honestly, it comes down to something really simple and really, really critical to me. We're blind. 
We're blind. We walk around as if we see the world as it is. We don't. Uh, there's a there's a deep uh, and very justifiable obsession with truth out there right now. <laughs> you know, the truth of fact, uh, the truth of, yeah, the, the truth of like, we have to have accurate enough um, views on what's going on in the world. And here's what sort of irks me is we are so overwhelmingly concerned about the fact that facts seem to be not agreed to, right? Uh, where, where, where they ought to be, where we believe they ought to be. And yet we seem to have very little to no concern about how uninformed we are about other people. Um, the social science research keeps showing us when you look at one side of the divide, you know, you ask people who lean Democrat what Republicans think about immigration or vice versa. Um, we, we assume that the views on the other side are far more extreme than they actually are. We, we, we assume all kinds of things that are so untrue. I mean, we, we would get the, like an F, right? Like the grade is F. <laughs> we don't understand the other side. The other, and that's, that's half the country in our country. So, so that's it to me. It's like, <laughs> we should be at least as concerned about how misinformed we are about each other, about the misinformation spreading out there, giving us these misperceptions about who other people are and where they come from. Why? Because it causes blindness. How does it cause blindness? Because it gets us to be so afraid of each other and so sure that other people are just coming from places of monstrosity that then if we see our society that way, how in the world are we going to get creative enough to tackle the enormous challenges coming us, at us right now. And I think we can see already, you know, <laughs> we've got our, our elected officials and they have no clue. Like it just, it just, you look at it, nothing's getting done, you know, because, because sometimes they get more, they get more points, they get more status from attacking the other side, joining that narrative, inflating our misperceptions uh, than they do from actually sitting down and figuring out what are the concerns at the heart of this issue? Let's collect them from across all our constituents. And let's sit down and figure this out. We're losing that ability because we're so blind. We're so blind to, to real people. So that's what it ultimately comes down to is, you know, people think, oh, it's just about being nice. This is not just about being nice. Besides, being curious is not, does not have to be nice. Nice does not play a role here. Um, what does play a role is respect. Is people are not, can't hear unless they're heard. And for people to genuinely hear each other, they have to begin by seeing the other person and the path they took to their views as being just as valid as their own. And that becomes a bigger and bigger challenge, the more certain we are that other people are monsters. I remember reading a report here in the UK a while back called Divided Britain, which came out of the Policy Institute at King's College London. And one of their findings was that when you look at the nature of polarization in the UK, Brits are much less divided on the issues than they think. But what shows up very clearly in their findings is a whole lot of what they call effective polarization, where the two sides have intense dislike for each other, even though they don't necessarily disagree on all that much. So it sounds like that's very much the kind of polarization you're interested in in the US as well. Would that be fair? Absolutely. And you mentioned that I, uh, I work at Braver Angels, and that's the nation's largest cross-partisan nonprofit uh, working on this problem, bringing liberals and conservatives in America together uh, to understand each other and see each other. And, and we do talk about that. We, we work specifically on affective polarization, 
the polarization that comes from feelings of dis- disgust, um, you know, the, 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 the animosity that one side sends the other. Uh, I cite a study in, in my book that, that shows that when you, when you poll both sides, um, each side uh, assumes that the other despises them twice as much as they actually do. And we know from our regular lives, we don't need, we don't need like social science to show us this. You know, when we think other people hate us, we feel more threatened. When we feel more threatened, we're not going to get curious, right? That makes perfect sense. You can't wonder about something you think is out to get you. And, and you're going to latch on to more certainty about that threatening thing automatically because you want to live a meaningful life. You want to feel free enough to live that life. You're going to avoid the thing that, that, that's coming to get you, you know? Yeah, but right. what if that fear isn't even true? <laughs> if that assumption isn't even true, then we're holding ourselves back in a huge way. And to me that, I mean, we have a lot of problems in this society, but that one's at the foundation of all the others in some ways. Yeah, right. So let's dig into what it, let's dig in some more to, to what it takes to have a, a kind of a, a curious conversation. And I, one question I had on this was whether you felt that um, a precondition for being able to have an effective curious conversation is that, do you need to go into it with the possibility in your mind that you might be wrong? Mm-hmm. Oh, I love that question. That, that certainly scares a lot of people, and I think it's a big step uh, for a lot of folks. Our need to be right is, is pretty hardwired in us. Our need to persuade is pretty hardwired in us. It comes from, you know, yeah, a, a need to feel like we are good people. We don't, we don't want to think that the ideas that we care about, you know, might be off. Or we certainly don't. So, so <laughs> yeah, I very much understand that. Is that a requirement for a curious conversation to come in, you know, very zen, uh, ready to be wrong? I would say no. Um, I think that if you if you do manage to do that, you're going to uh, you're going to move faster to understanding. You are, but it's not actually a full requirement. Um, in in my book, I, I break down curiosity into a practice. A, a lot of people think that it is a personality trait. Some people are more naturally curious than others. I question that. I don't think we have enough evidence to say that definitively. And to me, curiosity is much, much more accurately seen as a practice. So yeah, if you're, if you come in with your convictions pretty intact and you're like, I know I'm right about this, but I am curious. I want to see how other people believe the opposite. That is still very much possible. You can absolutely do that. I use the analogy of um, some smartphones have, you know, the apps on the screens, right? The little Mm -hmm. squares and a little grid. And then um, in a bunch of those systems, you can kind of do a couple of things so that you put it in in what's what's called, um, what can be called wiggle mode. The apps start to move a little bit in place and shake in place. And that's your cue that you can move them around. You can delete an app you no longer need. That to me is the, 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 the best analogy for how to come into a conversation across difference, holding our own beliefs. You're still, you're still holding them. They're right there. But you're allowing them to wiggle in place a little bit. You're allowing a little room in between so that, so that you can actually truly consider other perspectives and they can flow in your mind. And if there's any place that they would naturally kind of lock, you know, grip, then they do. And then you think or say, I never thought of it that way. 
And that's the title of the book. And that phrase, chasing, I never thought of it that way moments, is a really beautiful path to curiosity. And what you need to do to do that is expose yourself to different perspectives. But curiously, not under a sense of threat, not with any fear that the conversation is going to harm you. And we can talk about that uh, later. But, but, but genuinely open to how other people walked different paths to get to their views. You do not have to let your own views go. One of the things I was curious about myself was how to map what you talk about into the book onto somebody like Daryl Davis, whose story I'm sure you know, the African-American blues musician who's through kind of conversation and even friendship persuaded more than 200 white supremacists to leave the Ku Klux Klan. And I mean, obviously, I, I assume that Daryl goes into those conversations without entertaining the possibility that they might be right, but nevertheless curious about what led them to to those views. So I guess one of the things that comes out in your book is that you can have different kinds of curiosity. It doesn't have to be curiosity about whether they're right and you're wrong. It could be just curiosity about how did you reach such divergent standpoints. Exactly. And in fact, um, you know, you asked about the ingredients to curiosity, and that is one of them, is, is to ask how, not why. Uh, in a climate of distrust and a lot of fear, why is a perfectly beautiful, <laughs> natural, and wonderful question. Um, there's a name for that kind of curiosity. Epistemic curiosity is, is curiosity about why. Like, why does this happen this way and that happen that way? It's, it's beautiful. And it's a, at the foundation of a lot of things. But brought into a climate of distrust and asked of another person who might be suspicious of you, of whom you might be suspicious, why puts them on a stand, puts them on trial. You know, it sort of automatically um, triggers these reflexes of defense. Why do you believe what you believe? Oh no, let me, oh gosh, okay. I better go find like, what are the talking points? What are the reasons that I've heard on social media or on the news? Let me give this person those things so that I'm safe because I've been asked to justify my ideas. But today, justifying your ideas feels like justifying yourself. So instead you ask how, because how doesn't require people to justify themselves. It only asks them to tell a story. And the beautiful thing about somebody's own story is there's literally no one else who is a better source for that or more of an expert, you know? So like totally trustworthy. <laughs> if, if somebody is telling you their true story um, and you create the conditions in a conversation where that's okay, it's extremely powerful. And, and they give you a tour of the path they took to their views, which could be full of truth and insights, even if where they've arrived might have what you think is just like undeniably false conclusions. That doesn't mean that the person's own story is not rich with meaning and truth, you know? So that's where I think we ultimately learn from each other. So you, you've touched so far in the conversation on a few things that in order for us to be able to enter into a curious conversation, we would ideally have on our side. So you've mentioned uncertainty um, or interest-based curiosity. You've mentioned taking your assumptions and turning them into questions. And you've just been talking about maybe starting those questions with the word how rather than the word why. I'd love to ask you about what might be required from the other person in the conversation in order for that to work. And I guess what I'm thinking of here is that we've all had that experience of, I don't know, the annoying uncle at Christmas lunch or Thanksgiving dinner, you know, a complete yeah. blowhard whose views are completely infuriating and prejudiced. And I'm imagining a situation where, you know, you or I might show up for that conversation in keeping with the principles that you've just outlined. 
but they're just going to be as infuriating and opinionated and confirmed in their views as ever. In that situation, is it still possible to have the kind of curious conversation that you're talking about? I mean, is there a, do you need a kind of basic level of good faith willingness to enter a conversation in a spirit of encounter from the other side? Or is it still possible to have a curious conversation, even if someone's just completely dug in? Oh, yes, it, it is possible, but it is often not possible now. And it is often not possible on the terms that you would want. And that's the thing that's really annoying to people. We can't, we can't predict other people. We can't control other people. Uh, one of the, we can barely predict ourselves. <laughs> one of the, one of the, the, the fallacies I think that, that many people have uh, is thinking that, well, you know, if I'm going to build a bridge, that other person needs to walk on it immediately. Or this whole project is doomed and I'm just going to burn that bridge and never talk to that person again. This happens over and over again. Mm-hmm. And it, it's, it's, uh, it's hurting us. You know, that, that belief is hurting us. So what is required from the other person? I'm going to say something really radical. Nothing. Nothing is required from the other person. A lot could be required from you. And patience and courage. I said earlier, um, people cannot hear unless they're heard. And it's more true to say people cannot hear unless they feel heard. Whether somebody feels heard is up to them. You're not going to convince them or persuade them except to demonstrate thorough and authentic listening. Now, for some people who, you know, are very consumed by anger, are, are extremely certain about their own views. I mean, we've all been there. You know, many of us are certain about a lot of things. Um, and, and also extremely suspicious about anyone who would come in saying they're curious, but man, they're probably just here changing my mind. Yeah, they're going to spend... You're going to come in going, hey, I'm ready to be curious. And they're going to talk at you a long time. And you're going to sit there going, oh, my gosh, this is terrible. Maybe you're going to have to receive and hear things that bring up serious pain for you. And maybe that's too much and you're not going to be able to do it. And that's fine. That's fine. But here's the thing. As long as you can have another conversation about the same topic with a person, you never really left the conversation you started. I think we, you know, we, we, we think that conversations are just like that hour that I talked to him and that was it. But they, they continue. They are ongoing. It can take some people many conversations to feel heard. But everyone can get there. So really what I'm talking about is a relationship. And really what I'm talking about is trust. You know? If you're going up to your uncle on Thanksgiving and it's the first time in three years that you've had anything like an open conversation and you expect that uncle to suddenly open up to you about the path they took to their views right at that moment, you're forgetting how people work, <laughs> you know? So it's it doesn't require anything from them. It requires everything from you. Uh, a lot of patience. It takes some courage. Some of these are going to, some of these bridges are going to be harder for people to cross than others, but there's no such thing as a person incapable, and there's no such thing as a conversation of understanding that's ultimately impossible. I'd love to, I mean, on a related theme, I'd love to ask you about conversations where maybe, um, I'm thinking of a situation where if you imagine, for example, someone who is gay and whether to have a conversation with a homophobe or a person of color and whether to have a conversation with a racist, 
And I can see that the approach that you're outlining could potentially lead to encounter, and maybe as with the case of Daryl Davis, even kind of leaving that person space to change their mind about some of their views. But at the same time, um, I've sometimes heard the the kind of pushback, and I'm sure you'll you'll have heard it too, that that approach risks asking disadvantaged people to do the emotional labor of kind of empathizing with people who may be oppressing them, where there's a real power dynamic. Um, so how do you how do you respond to that kind of pushback when it comes up? Oh yeah, I mean, first of all, yeah, <laughs> we we are talking about emotional labor, and 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 like I said, this is. Um, you know, what, what I like to say is you don't have to talk to a Nazi tomorrow, right? I mean, people hear about these methods and they think, oh no, you know, she wants me to go straight to the hardest, most, you know, I'm thinking about that person who I least understand. She wants me to go to that person now. No, 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 no. (laughs) You know, everyone has their journey through this. And really all I'm asking is wherever your boundaries are, push them a little bit. But your circle might be this this small, right? Okay, put, push at the boundary of that. It's it's not it's not an, a uniform prescription for all people. Let's put it that way. Um, but but there is there is more to say about this. Um, so so where to begin? Um, when people's own identity feels like the thing that someone else opposes, that really is the highest level of difficulty for this. Here's a couple things that I would say. One is when I hear that phrase, you know, this is not my work to do. I would agree. And I would, I would ask that person, like, look around. You're not the only one doing it. Right now we live in a pretty extraordinary time where black people are not the only people talking about how black people are oppressed. Mm-hmm. Gay people are not the only people talking about how gay people are oppressed. Uh, there are people who do not share those identities also having those conversations. So don't feel alone. The burden is not all on you. Um, You may think it is, but it is not. Now that said, the person who is gay, the person who is black, the person who is trans, the person who carries the experience that is misunderstood, broadly misunderstood, and, and as a result, people marginalize that identity, that person, carries a lot of power in the fact that they carry the experiences. Now we've seen through many, many studies that when people talk about morality and bring up their own um, experiences, it's far more persuasive. It is far more powerful. So, so while it is true, right, that a black person or a gay person or whoever, whoever is an oppressed group is not the only one having to do this work, it is also true that when they do the work, it is enormously powerful. Now, I, I also, you know, began this whole conversation by talking about we're so divided, we're blinded. We are blind. So, you know, logically, if you play this out, right, if the problem is that we're not seeing each other and the people who need to be seen take themselves out of that, I don't know how that ends up. Do you know what I mean? But I think the theory is that, you know, those people who hold those identities take themselves out of the process, but others do the work for them. Right. I mean, that could still work, but I think it's slower and I think it's less powerful. So if the folks, right, with these identities want quick change, then if they can accept 
some emotional labor. And by the way, I'm talking about everybody here, right? Like this is a shared problem (laughs) across our society. I don't think it's all, it's all on certain folks, but I do think that the pain that you, that you could face in a conversation is much worse if the thing that's being disagreed upon, it has to, you know, feels like it's about you. Oh my gosh, it's so much harder. So but it is an individual choice. It, it really truly is. And then the last thing I'll say is this. We also talked about how, you know, each side assumes the other despises them twice as much as they actually do. Mm-hmm. I, 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 I believe that there are a lot of people walking around right now who are living under enormous anxiety. And that some of that anxiety is based on misperceptions of reality, misperceptions of what people actually believe. So that's the question. You're already doing emotional labor, living in a world that instead is scarier to you than it needs to be. Right. Right? So this is not just about jumping into emotional labor from a place of I'm fine. (laughs) No, many people are feeling absolutely not fine and already under threat. So what if, what if jumping into this unknown in even the ways that you feel comfortable, again, you don't have to talk to a Nazi tomorrow. You do not have to be Daryl Davis. But what if each of those conversations actually lowers the anxiety and the fear as you talk with people instead of about them? What if you see more of the reality of people's perceptions and you realize they don't hate you as much as you think? That will reduce emotional labor, (laughs) the emotional labor that you face every day. So, I mean, that's, you know, that's not an easy thing to, to adopt maybe, but, but that's, that's the situation we're in. One of the uh, parts of your book is called Honesty. And it talks about how to prioritize candor and clarity in conversation. And I, I'd love to ask you about that because I think, um, when I first started trying to kind of consciously have conversations across lines of difference, I would think a lot that it was all about listening and the quality of attention and you know asking open-ended questions. And I think something it, it took me longer to realize was that actually practicing emotional disclosure is also just as important a part of it and kind of telling your own story and that, that there's a certain kind of generosity to opening up and showing some vulnerability. And, and is that is that what you're getting at in the section on honesty? Could you could you talk a bit about that? Yeah, that's absolutely part of it. And I think you put it really well. Um, you know, uh, earlier in the book, uh, there, there's a chapter on, on, well, there's a chapter on conversation and the superpower of conversation. And this actually goes back to what we were, what we were just talking about too. We do, we do walk long paths to our views. You know, we have deep histories. Um, experiences that are are quite firm in our minds, right? And and roots that go down um, that explain our opinions if we're willing to ask about them and see them. In conversation, I love the language we use. We are in conversation. We are in a completely unique place where you, it's not just you and me, it's you in this moment, me in this moment, sharing meaning from our minds where we have certain things concerning us and preoccupying us. And this is a conversation. It is an extraordinarily powerful way for us to enrich each other, learn from each other, challenge each other, piss each other off, etc. cetera. Um, so what we tend to believe is that the only 
qualified content for a conversation is words. Mm-hmm. Um, and that words are, words are it, you know, we're, and, and arguments and reasons, but emotion is content. Right. Emotion is data. Passion is, is information, is content, is data. So there's a wonderful author, Valerie Cower, who says, anger is a force that protects that which is loved. And, um, and it's a wonderful reminder that when you hear someone else get angry, when you hear yourself get angry, I think we're tempted to think, time to go. <laughs> we're done, right? And it may be true. If you're adding a lot of heat to a conversation without cooking anything, then yeah, it's time, it's time to go. But if you're adding a lot of heat to a conversation with a lot of emotion, and you're observing the effects of that emotion, and you're going, wow, I got I to gotta tell you, I'm feeling really worked up right now. And as I think about it, I think it's because that thing you said two minutes ago really bothers me. Can I tell you? Can I tell you why? You know, and then you get that buy-in and you're able to share. Yeah. I mean, you know, what you said about abortion just sat in my, sat, sits right here in my gut. And I'm, and I'm thinking, ah, you know, but what about this? And what about that? So I just got to tell you, like, that's, that's what I'm feeling. What, what do you think about that? And then all of a sudden the emotion, you know, is itself something to build meaning around. Um, and, and that, those are really, really cool moments because people might at that point go, oh my gosh, I never, I never thought of how someone could feel that way about it. And when somebody sees that, they themselves understand a new dimension of the issue. You know, it's something that really concerns you, but didn't really concern them. And now they're empathizing, you know, and they're seeing it from another. So yes, I mean, when, when we're, when we're, when we look at emotion as data and we allow that to come into our conversations and build meaning around it, we can be a lot more honest, a lot more candid, and we can stay in the kitchen. You know, we can stay in the kitchen where we're building the heat and not necessarily run away and cook something. We can make something really awesome. Something else I was really interested to ask you is, I mean, you, you have a lot of experience in this work. You've seen a lot of these kind of conversations. And I wanted to ask you, where have you seen this approach work best? Um, but also, where has your faith in it been most challenged? Oh, great question. Uh, well, <laughs> it works best the more contained a conversation is to the people actually participating in it. Um, We often criticize these approaches as if the only place to exchange ideas with people who disagree with us is on social media. Right. You know, one, one challenge we didn't talk about is that fear of platforming, right? A lot of people say, if I go and have a conversation with someone who believes something really unsavory, even if I really want to be curious about it, I will allow those ideas to be expressed. I will invite them to be expressed. And I don't know, it's going to be like a virus. It's going to infect everybody. But the thing is, that's only a problem when you're having that conversation publicly. It's not a problem when it's one-to-one. Now, after the pandemic and after so many people moving to places where they are surrounded more and more by people who agree with them, these kinds of conversations become more difficult to even have the opportunity to have. Um, rituals like in America, you know, Thanksgiving and the holidays, and I'm sure in UK as well, where people come together 
And there's a relationship, family relationship or whatever, coworker at a party, you know, those become the, <laughs> the stages where these things are possible and we have to take those opportunities. But anyway, that, that's where it works best is in contained conversations. So long as things are contained, people are not tempted to perform because there's no one to perform to. You don't have an audience. You don't, you don't have an audience. It's much easier to build trust. So that's, that's where it works. You know, you'll notice Daryl Davis didn't tweet his conversations. <laughs> <You know? laughs> Daryl Davis didn't put him on social media for a reason, you know, because, because he and they probably said a bunch of things that taken out of context would like, I don't know, like people would just kick him off. Right. And, and, but we know, we know the integrity of our own minds, you know, you and I and everyone in order to figure out our own thinking, our brains, we allow our minds to go to deep and dark places. We have to, in order to get to what we really think. We can't do that on the public stage uh, without fearing for some things that we ought to fear, you know, especially at a time like this. So the place where I, um, you asked where, where's, where's most challenging? What situations is this? Is this like, oh boy. Um, and I am most concerned, I think, about uh, the systems and institutions that reward division and, and, and seem to, and I don't want to overstate this, but, but almost seem to punish um, curious exchange. And, and I'm thinking about the three institutions, <laughs> the three institutions that a lot of folks who come to Brave Angels, you know, tell us, well, it's great that you're working on the grassroots, but man, what are you going to do about politics, media, and technology? Right. Those are the three. Our politics, our media, and our technology are the institutions. You know, technology at this point is the utility for conversation at scale. Media at this point is our storytelling institution, critical to a good democracy. And politics, of course, well, heck, that's the way we're supposed to get things done. But I think when you look at those three institutions, you can see that our polarization and our division has poisoned them. Um, and, and here's the thing, like I have interviewed sitting members of, of the U.S. Congress. You know, I am myself a journalist and I've talked to a lot of journalists. If you pluck out a journalist, if you pluck out a politician and you have a contained conversation with them, they will tell you they hate this. Yes. They hate the games they have to play. Right. But somehow they still have to play them. It, and that that is the most irritating thing of all, because you you take each of these people who work in politics. And I would I, I mean, I haven't done it, but I really think right definitely more than 90% of them will tell you this is terrible the way that 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 our institution works but none of them feel they have the power to change it even though they all agree it should you know and so that's that's the place that i think is the most challenging because just like you know america and, and much of the rest of the world has had a lot of conversations about systemic change you know how how even like one person being like i'm not racist you know i i really work on that well, there are still systems in place where certain, you know, awful things have just been encoded and it's been hard to figure out where those places are and we're having a big argument about it. We want to make sure we don't like change too much or whatever. Same thing. <laughs> These systems in politics and media and technology are keeping us from doing what, what I think we, need, we know we need to do. Um, but the systems are very strong. And they deliver results uh, for a lot of industries and a lot of people and a lot of, you know, and that's, that's, that's the biggest, that's an extremely big challenge. <laughs> right, right. 
I'm glad you mentioned the, the systemic aspect because that's what I wanted to ask you about next. Um, in our work at Larger Us, we, we talk about the kind of three levels uh, of doing this work of becoming a Larger Us, where there's the work on ourselves, the kind of inner personal work, yeah. work with each other, the kind of relational work that we do in our friendship groups, in our families, where we work, and then the systemic level, the work we need to do together to change the world. And I mean, the, the resonance of everything that you talk about in your book for the relational level is so clear. But I'd love to ask you about its relevance to the systemic level, too, um, because I know you're primarily talking about one to one conversations. But do you have a vision for how this can scale and aggregate into something that has national impacts, even as you look to the next election in the U.S.? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it comes back a little bit to how I was saying, you know, you can pluck people out of the system and talk to them and they all agree that it sucks. I think that what's missing is a broad understanding, is looking around and everyone seeing each other and realizing, oh, wait a second, we all think it sucks. We are the system. Let's change it. I think it's a mind shift, but it can only happen when we're willing to have these conversations. Um, so that's what I think it is. I think it's honestly just like waking up, <laughs> you know, <laughs> just waking up. Because the thing about systems is I, I do think that while the conversation about systemic change and dismantling systems has been really productive, we often forget that systems don't have any life of their own. The only thing that has life on this planet is animals and plants and people. <laughs> people are it. You know, like, like I, I sort of think to myself, you know, I, I'm from Seattle, that if everyone in Seattle woke up tomorrow, if everyone in the world woke up tomorrow and decided that Seattle was called Yisconsity, then Seattle would be called Yisconsity. You know, like we can, we can do whatever we want and we don't see our own power because we carry these stories about how hard and immovable the systems are. I mean, in fact, like I'll implicate myself. I just, I just shared that story here. These systems of media and politics and technology are so strong and everyone's resigned in the face of them. Well, we don't have to believe that's true. We don't have to believe it. So, so to me, it's that. It's just like the same way that you walk into a one-on-one -on -one conversation and you allow some room between your beliefs, right? And you, you allow yourself to begin by saying that other person is valid. I may not agree with them, but they are a person. Then then that's what we can do. And we can look at our systems and go, what are you? You're, you're just our best attempt at organizing something. Okay, let's, let's change some things. Um, I think the only thing in the way really is the awareness and the interpersonal relationships to, to step into the power we have. We just, we just don't see it, but that's, that's our willful blindness. That's blindness. So, so yeah, even though I just said it's really hard and the most challenging thing, it's also the easiest thing. It's also the easiest thing for people to, to be like, oh, the one thing we're all agreed on left and right in the United States is how much this sucks. It's changing. Right. It's interesting because as I, as I listen to you, what you're reminding me of is that field of practice known as systemic coaching, which uh, kind of coaches who work with a system that might be a team or an organization, but some system of relationships and their whole approach is to try and make the system aware of itself to kind of bring that visibility. And I've seen that approach work amazingly well 
with you know families or teams or, or as I say, even organizations. But my question to them is always, how could you take this approach that so clearly has transformational potential and apply it to you know really big systems like, as you say, tech or media or politics? So yeah, I mean, I, I very much agree. It feels like that's where a lot of the gold is buried. And I should add one other thing. So Braver Angels, you know, having been asked many times, like, hey, you're you're changing lives on the grassroots level, great. But what are you going to do on the systemic level? Um, and so we've we're we're launching something called Braver Politics. We're doing uh, <laughs> we're doing workshops, skills trainings, um, forums, town halls with elected officials across the United States, um, the staff of members of Congress. So we're taking all these all these things that we know work on the grassroots level in people's everyday lives. And politicians have asked us to bring it to them. And it's, I think that's one of the most exciting things we're doing. And, and so that's braver politics, right? But, but first of all, we don't, we don't have like a very territorial sense about this. Like we just want, we just want America to see itself. And um, I'm really excited about what would braver media look like? And again, it's not, it's not to give it like that label, but, but what would a more curious culture of media look like? What would a more curious culture of technology look like? Um, and I got to tell you, just, just in the last few weeks, I've been meeting technologists too, who are coming with, are coming to me with like hunger, just, oh my gosh, like, let's talk about this. You know, I work at Facebook. Um, I work at YouTube. Like, I know that there's something we can do. So, so have, I mean, I, I'm, I have a lot of hope because, uh, I'm seeing a lot of a lot of these a lot of these people are, are kind of standing up and saying, I can't, I can't sit with this anymore. We gotta do something. So I see that rising. You mentioned the bridge building is having a bit of a a moment. It is. It really is. And not just among bridge building organizations. No, that wouldn't really be a moment. What's happening is that bridge building as a necessity is being recognized precisely in those institutions that unfortunately are incentivized to keep us divided. Right. People want to change those incentives from the inside because we're people and, and all people can recognize that this is not a good place to be. Yeah. Even if the systems won't yet. <laughs> I wanted to finish by asking you about the applicability of your approach to international contexts, because of course, Ukraine is right at the forefront of everyone's minds right now. Yeah. And on the one hand, you know, it's very striking to see how um, in Russia, Vladimir Putin is seeking to kind of foment a them and us narrative uh, between Russians and Ukrainians and also Russians and the West, apparently with some success. I mean, it's really sobering to Absolutely. see statistics that, you know, 50 to 60 percent of Russians, as far as we can tell, strongly support the war. And you'll also have seen the same accounts that I have of kind of Russians who disbelieve accounts of atrocities in Ukraine, even when those accounts are from their own relatives. But then on the other hand, and more hopefully, there's also these signs of, you know, what we would call kind of larger us dynamics of refusal to other. Um, and I think two amazing examples. One is Volodymyr Zelensky himself. And the other is the extraordinary video that Arnold Schwarzenegger just put out in the last 24 hours, where he appealed uh, to ordinary Russians. And what's so interesting about Zelensky and Schwarzenegger's approaches is they're both, as I say, refusing to other ordinary Russians, instead kind of reaching uh, out to them, ignoring Putin, but appealing to his base. Um, in, in Schwarzenegger's case, really talking about his affection and respect for Russians, um, 
or in Zelensky's case, sort of expressing compassion for the mothers of Russian soldiers um, and so forth. And it strikes me that these are gifted leaders using a lot of the principles that you talk about for, you know, curious conversations, like you've talked about the centrality of respect and avoiding contempt. And I just wonder at this point where there's such powerful potential for kind of othering between not just individuals or political tribes, but between peoples, is there scope to apply the principles that you're talking about, not just in the way that leaders like Zelensky or Schwarzenegger communicate, but also to start to build a culture of encounter between peoples? I mean, do you know of any kind of initiatives that seek to build contact uh, between peoples in situations like this, where there's kind of this high degree, as I say, of othering, but also potential from reaching out to ordinary Russians if that can subvert support for Putin? Yeah, I mean, to answer the last question first, you know, there's a long history of exchange programs that that do exa- exactly this, um, often targeted at students, but but not necessarily. Um, we we know that that works, uh, and there's a lot of studies that show that that even one conversation with someone will reduce prejudice, if, as long as it's with that person, not about the person. So we we know that that works. Um, and I think taking a step back, you know, what we're seeing, war, cannot abide curiosity about other people. And, 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 you know, this is uncomfortable too, but it's like the ability to, to kill the ability to, um, to take away someone's livelihood and life altogether. You know, we're humans. The only way that we could be moved to do that is to take our us and them othering to the max. I mean, and, and to be fair to, to, you know, to our evolutionary history, this is the way that that we have evolved, um, lots of tribes of people, and the closer that they banded together against an enemy, the more victorious they would be. We are hardwired when we feel threatened to bond to those who agree with us and attack those who don't. And we have done it in a violent and brutal way. I mean, that's what war is. So. So it is important that like, it's not just that, oh, we're at war and look how, how much othering we're doing. We wouldn't be at war if there weren't othering. It is the same thing. <laughs> it has to be. It has to be for us to disrespect each other to that level. Um, so that's, that's what happens. Somebody needs to, you know, people need to get to that point where the ends justify the means. There's something, you know, Putin believes or or is at least convincing others that he believes, right? That that no, this is ultimately what we need to do. And so I'm going to other with abandon because that's what I have to do and it's information warfare and I'm going to get that I mean that is the most the most uh, effective kind of warfare right now is information warfare because that's the thing that travels fastest and all around the world. When you think about going back to World War II, the propaganda that Japan had against America, that America had against Japan and Germany and all these countries what was one of the things that was fascinatingly different then is that like that information could not cross borders the same way that it can today. Right. So the fact that Schwarzenegger can sit there in wherever he made that video, <laughs> make that video and have a hope that ordinary Russians could watch it is a miracle. So as much as I've been like trashing technology, trashing media, hey, we actually have a chance of reaching each other. You know, what that means is that those parties at war will stop at nothing to make sure that those messages don't get to where they could harm their war othering cause. 
but it also means that the people who want to inject, you know, curiosity will continue to try and because they, it just might work. So, woof, you know, that's, that's a pretty amazing thing. Um, if, you know, to rehumanize, to rehumanize ourselves and stop killing each other. Well, that's a great place and a hopeful place to wrap up. So Monica Guzman, thank you so much for joining us for this episode. Uh, It's been an absolute pleasure. Uh, Moni's book, I Never Thought of It That Way, How to Have Fearlessly Curious Conversations in Dangerously Divided Times is, as I say, uh, published this month. Um, I've read it. It's terrific. I really recommend it. Uh, And it's been great talking to you today. So thank you again for joining us. Thank you so much. This was lovely conversation. I learned a lot from it. And that's that's what that's what it's all about. So that's all we have time for. Thanks so much for joining us. If you'd like to find out more about Larger Us's work and how you can get involved, then head over to larger.us forward slash get hyphen involved, where you'll find details of how to sign up for our mailing list, together with lots more about our community and our courses. Until then, thanks again for joining us this time, and we'll hope to see you again soon.